0: Welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I take a fascinating person to a top restaurant for a lavish meal and maybe a bottle or two. It's surprising what people will tell you over the dining table. It's where I've had the best conversations of my life, probably the best experiences, in fact. Today, I'll be sat across from a comedian, broadcaster and novelist, the man behind Three Lions, it's David Padil. There were something like 5.6 million downloads of Three Lions from which we would have earned
1: collectively... £837 pounds or something.
0: So, for this episode of Out to Lunch, I've decided to take my cue from David Badil's love of going for an Indian. Although this is no ordinary one, we've come to Mayfair and a very fancy Indian restaurant called Tamarind. It's got a Michelin star and everything. Come on in, I think it's going to be good. Yeah, well, see, it's nice, isn't it? Uh, you get a little room with a studio. We create a studio for yeah. you, specifically for you. Wow. So when we send out, you know, emails and all that sort of stuff to people to say are there any dietary requirements? Mm. Yeah. Normally they come back with don't eat eggs, mm. uh, don't eat avocados, that was mm. one. Mm. You mm. came back with really like high-end sushi, you have mm. been trying to refine mm. the great steak that I to add. <laughs> Not so sure about posh Indian, but we decided to ignore you on that, yeah. because we're in no, seriously no, posh Indian. That's fine. So food is a thing. Mm. It matters. You know, yeah. to think we've had a bit of a spat. It wasn't okay. a terrible spat. Uh, Compared to the spats that we get into with other people. <laughs> oh, God, no, yeah, no, not at all. But let's discuss it. Our, no, no, our
1: spat was about this. Uh, for a very brief time, uh, I was writing restaurant reviews for the Sunday Times. When Aegil oh, died, yeah. when Aigil died uh, they asked me... They had a few people. It was a sort of have-I-got-news-for-you thing where we'll have guest reviews for a bit before they settled on the brilliant Marina mm. O'Loughlin, uh, who is much better at that job than I am. My pr- primary thing was not food, of course, uh, even though I like food and I am somewhat obsessed with food, which is why I'm doing this podcast, but I was it's mainly many It to do with
0: my company. It's just purely to have yeah, lunch. You know, yeah.
1: the free lunch is, yeah. uh, is a big deal. Uh, But I wanted to write, you know, as I always do, mainly to amuse rather than to necessarily say anything uh, deeply intelligent about food. And I think I began one review... I think it was of an Indian place. I think it was um, Cricket, spelled with a K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'd gone, I'd gone there with Edgar Wright, the film director, okay. who told me his dream job was being a food reviewer, a yeah. restaurant reviewer. This is a bloke who's a Hollywood film director. Yeah. but He told me. He made, made um, Shaun of the Dead and most recently... He just Driver. made Baby Driver. And I think I began that review by saying perhaps provocatively although I hadn't thought about it really uh, really anyone can be a food reviewer Uh, and my point was I mean again it's really a comic point Mm. is that almost any other thing you don't have to do you don't have to go to the cinema you don't have to go to the opera you don't have to go to Mm. the theatre you have to eat three times a day or you die so therefore everyone has a you know what everyone I, what... is skilled in food at some level. Uh, now, not everyone goes to these kind of places, mm-hmm. but my point was that was that we can all say, mmm, tasty, or not, about food. D- did I then argue
0: back that you'd missed the point of what the job was? I think, I
1: think so. And also, because there was some other, much less uh, respected than you, reviewer online who got really cross with me about it. <laughs> and what I really loved about it was he quoted me saying that, and then said something about this is David Badil uh, looking like a seven-year-old trying to play Rachmaninoff's uh, sonata in D flat minor. Rachmaninoff Never wrote a sonata, <laughs> which is what I really loved about that. In his attempt to be posh
0: and clever, he His references right yeah, of crap. Yeah, references of crap. Yeah. I think my point was that people misunderstand the job. That actually, it's irrelevant what I know about the food, although I know my stuff. Mm. It's that it's a writing job, not an eating job, and it's right. how it's written, and that's the point. Right. So that not everybody could do it.
1: Yeah. Well, in that case, mm. I would claim to be entirely able to do it because I am a writer. Because you are a writer. Yeah, but I don't oh. think I know that much about food. That's the thing. I like food. And you I should know. see the
0: number of emails that start that way. Yeah.
1: But when I read you, yeah. on and Lachlan, I think, well, these are very good writers, but I do also get a sense
0: that there's a sort of knowledge about food that I don't know if I would ever have. No, I, I don't think it's, it's necessary. The knowledge is obviously you have to know stuff. Yeah. But I think specifically it's about being able to work out what the angle is for a piece around food. Yeah.
1: I mean, the reason I said look, I'm not that keen on posh Indian... The nicest Indian food I ever had was not a posh place. There's was a place near me called Dars. My general feeling with Indian food is that I've had my nicest Indian food either in India, uh, where it's generally very cheap, uh, or in fairly robust sort of places like that that don't feel airs and graces its E. Well, this, this is
0: about as cheap as it can get for you. What tamarind? Oh yeah, no. What, what eating with you? Yes. Yeah, that is cheap. It's it's exceedingly cheap. <laughs> There's a menu that is a menu there. Okay. So, do you are you going to order? Because All I right. do trust you. Right. This is Avin. Hello. Oh, nice no, to meet you. I'm no, David. Nice
1: to Sam. Thank
0: you. Right. We'll have the chats. Yes, please. And the scallops. Yes,
2: scallops.
0: The crispy lobster. Crispy lobster. The chili goat, chili goat ribs. The black pepper chicken tikka. Black pepper chicken
1: tikka. Chicken tikka.
0: The lamb curry. And the dal. And kind of a salty
1: lassie.
2: Yes.
1: I should say, I, I have a curry every Tuesday night after I played football. And in 30 years, normally, of that, I've never had a beer. Everyone else has a beer. I have salty lassie, which still confuses everyone else I play with who are all not Jewish.
0: Give him a salty lassie, <laughs> yeah, yeah, He'll absolutely. know
2: where he is. It so will root yeah. him. Absolutely. Nan, what do you like? Plain butter
0: or garlic? Garlic sounds quite nice. I'll <laughs> have plain. Plain
2: butter garlic. garlic.
1: Seeing a friend later. Yes, well I'm, I'm being inducted into the Royal Society of Literature later, so can I be
0: smelling of garlic? You're being inducted into the Royal Society I am. of Literature? Yeah, yeah. Did they send you a letter?
1: I got a thing from a woman who works there saying Marina Warner, I think she's head of the Royal Society of Literature, wants to send you a letter. And I wrote back saying... Any time. I, well, no, I wrote back saying, have I done something wrong? Because instantly I thought I assumed <laughs> that something bad had happened and that I'd been caught out. Imposter syndrome had finally been caught out. Like I was being expelled from literature. And she said, no, 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 they haven't done something wrong. It's, it's a good thing. And then, uh, but didn't tell me by email. I had to see it on the nice creamy paper that I was going to become a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature.
0: So that's quite exciting. It's very exciting. And really, congratulations. It's so a curious thing, though. Um, so you've written... They're always described in different ways. Mm. Um, I think it's one of one of the wiki entries says, he's written four novels and six children's books. Mm. And I keep wanting to shout, they're all novels. They are all novels. That's true. They are all novels. Um, although, yes, I wouldn't want children to read most of my adult novels, uh, not no, just because I mean, they're not understandable. You know, there's a certain amount of... Sex. Masturbation in yeah. Time for Bed. Anal sex as anal well. Anal sex yeah. Well, there's quite yeah. a lot, whole chapter about anal sex. There is. I was very right. influenced by Philip
1: Roth and John Updike when I wrote, <laughs> wrote the, that book. I'm
0: proud I of it. I love Time for
1: well, Bed. No, thank you. I'm very proud of Time for Bed. I think it's a very funny book. What happened with that, to some extent, was I'd written four novels two of which sold very well. Time for Bed and uh, Whatever Love I Me, mean, it sold yeah. very, very well. Then I went for literary with my third novel, which is called The Secret Purposes, which is about the internment of Jewish-German refugees on the, the island of Man, Man, which is what happened to my grandfather. But it's a serious novel, historical novel, with no comedy in it. That didn't sell so well. Um, it's good, I think. It's a good book, but it didn't sell so well. And then my fourth novel, The Death of Eli Gold, I think by that, I mean, I really think that's my best novel, but... To be honest, what happened with that one was it got some brilliant reviews, some really brilliant reviews, but then a real stinker in The Guardian. And I think what I thought at that point is it's not true that one writes just to write. One wants to be read. And if you're writing literary fiction, it's kind of, you won't be read unless you get good reviews in the... Thank you very much. My Your salty, salty latte l- has arrived. Should I try this before I I think I you should. On? Yeah, it's got a little sort of powdery thing on it. What is that?
0: What is the powdery thing
2: on it? See why I love flowers.
1: it's oh, very nice
2: Excellent.
1: it's very nice and it's up there with the standard on Holloway Road where I have a salty lassie every, every Tuesday, Tuesday every Tuesday I have a pint normally a pint of lassie <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> do you have it in two halves, or do you just get it in no,
1: one they always bring it to me straight away I mean it's the nearest place I have in London the standard on Holloway Road to your, fa- your your usual table sir so that book Death of Eli like Gold came out and uh, I thought oh this is kind of kill, kill. I mean, I, you know, to be honest with you the secret purpose is that's your third book, the one My about internment on,
0: on, on yeah, the Isle of Man. Yeah. But, but
1: actually, on that note, which has a kind of at least a restaurant element yeah. to it, um, when I did Who Do You Think You Are, which I did in the first series, I was the Jew in the first series. They always have a Jew because they like a bit of Nazi stuff. They cut out the, uh, the fact that I knew all about the Isle of Man right, because to like, okay. pretend that people don't know what the journey they're about to go on. But what I didn't know was that uh, they, they thought they not sure whether it really was, but they'd found where my grandfather lodged on the Isle of Man because for people who don't know um, what the British did was in 1941, they put all Germans, 98% of whom were German Jewish refugees, on the Isle of Man because there was a kind of tabloid-inspired panic about Germans in right. Britain and they just assumed... People were so shocked by the way that Germany had gone through Europe, they assumed there were fifth columnists abroad in France and Holland and all these places and must be in Britain as well. And Churchill reacted to that panic by saying, in, uh, collared the lot and arrested and interned all Jewish German refugees and a few actual right. Nazis and put them on the other man, including my grandfather. So we found, where we thought my grandfather was supposed to have been kept, which was just literally, you know, would have been a B&B at the time. And now it's a disused Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and what was brilliant about that, and you can still see it somewhere if you get, get hold of it, is I go into a meltdown on finding this because I've sort of spent the whole show finding rubble like I go to this place in um, Kaliningrad where my mother's from and I find, you know, some rubble of the house, or whatever, and then I go to the Isle of Man and I find this filthy... I mean, literally, there's cartons yeah. everywhere and menus everywhere. And I say, I imagine that Ian Hislop now, because he was on there, is at some manor house uh, in, like, Wiltshire and saying, oh, it's exactly the same as it was in the 17th century when my great-grandfather lived here, how wonderful. And I said, but if you come from refugee stock, Everything you find is like this, either burnt or rubble, or just a mess. Oh, was that the,
0: was that the final, you know, the stick that broke the candles back when you got to this Chinese yeah,
1: restaurant? Yeah, yeah, uh, It is you can see me sort of losing it, saying, you know, I thought this would be a lovely experience, retracing the steps of You my wanted ancestors. a stucco
0: bed and breakfast looking out over yeah. the sea.
1: Here I am in the the Lovely property that my grandparents or my great grandparents used to own and I could feel how their footsteps would have walked through these panel corridors. No, here is a shit Chinese restaurant because it's all people fleeing. So either it's rubble or it's things that have been taken over or left or whatever or just disused and discarded stuff. Um, the reason I brought up The Secret Purposes is I remember being interviewed by a journalist a journalist called Matthew Weiss, I think his name was. He was very nice about the book, lovely about the book, about The Secret Purposes. And he said, well, this, this will just win the Wingate Prize. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Wingate Prize is a prize for Jewish fiction to do with Jewish themes. It didn't get nominated, right? And then I just thought, okay, so I do have a
2: problem here. Oh, what have we got here? here. This is the Rajasthani churi chart. Brilliant. Tell us what it is, Abhin. This one uh, comes from Rajasthan, northern part of India. And churi means crumbled. So this is like a deconstructed chart. So it's a crumbled of wheat crisps and the corn crisps and uh, this is a category of street food which always have a different chutneys. So it has a combination of mango and chilli, mint and coriander and then sweetened yogurt to balance it. And
0: underneath is a sort of puri element of it, the uh, crisp wafer that it all sits on. Yes.
2: Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you.
1: So at that point I became straightforwardly disenchanted I think with writing the kind of books I was writing even though I think those are good books. But, you know, in terms of the, oh, you no, know, you just write for your art, never mind. I just thought, no, I'm not just writing for my art. And it just so happens that at the same time, my son gave me an idea for a children's book. Was as simple as that? Yeah, well, he didn't give me... I mean, he said something, which gave me an idea. Um, which led to the parent agency, which was my first children's book. Which oh, so, sold enormous numbers. Well, that's, that's the point. It's like, my children's books now sell... I've sold over a million and a half children's books. And... um that is brilliant in lots of ways, and obviously brilliant financially and all that stuff. But it also brought something home to me, which is, of course, I am struggling against all sorts of preconceptions. You know, with the literary fiction and with novels and whatever. And you do have these gatekeepers with that stuff; that it's very hard to get past. You don't really have that with children's books. It's a very, very direct relationship with your audience. No, there, there are no
0: gatekeepers. It's it's the kids who
1: like it. Yeah, kids um, like it or they don't like it. They tell their friends in the playground. I mean, you do have kids reviewers, but
0: they don't matter. You and know. also, kids are discerning. Yeah. If the book's not readable, they won't bloody read it just to make somebody feel better. No. Do you think you'll go back to writing, writing adult books? Adult books. I've just signed
1: a deal for four more children's books. Well, um, you'll clearly be writing some more children's books. So. Yeah, um, but I... I would like to write another adult book at some point. Um, I just don't know quite at the moment when I'll find the time, and I don't have a burning idea for one.
0: I want to go. I do want to go back. I Sorry. know you want to talk about and go back. So you've described your upbringing as lower middle class. Well, you did go to Haberdashers. I was a direct grant
1: student at Haberdashers. Uh, so that that was one of those rare. It's one, things. Of those, it's one of those things that although I did go to private school, my education for was almost I think ninety eight percent paid for by the state because. When I got into Haberdashers on a scholarship anyway, my dad had been made redundant and we had no money at all. And so it was means tested as a direct grant thing. And
0: so the state paid for my education, even though it was a private school. Was that a tricky experience? Because that school was full of really wealthy kids. Yeah, it was quite tricky. Hang on a sec, we have food arriving. It was tricky. Is this still starters? It is. That was very Things nice, will just why. arrive in. That the... was nice. Uh, the uh, thing. <laughs> the thing. The chat. Yeah. yeah. We just had two scallops in the shell. There's a, a lentil sauce
2: with a hint of coconut, and I got some naan also to...
1: Thank you. So this is a good example of what I mean by posh Indian food. Are you telling me they don't do this on the Holloway route? They don't, really don't do this. It's for people who cannot be with us. And I'm just listening to this. Uh, this is an actual scallop in a shell with a
0: lentil sauce. So one of the, um, and this is uh, this is terrible. I'm, I'm just curious about it. The, the old Thank th- you. things that were, were said to my ear a lot was you're just a bunch of bloody comedians, right? Uh, yeah. And the curious thing is, you, yeah. Matt Lucas, Sasha Baron Cohen, Sacha Baron Cohen and a few others, and actually. a few others. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, is there anything that about that school that inspired a career in comedy? The primary thing is North London Jewishness. You know, there's actually loads and loads of Jews in
1: English, in British comedy, yeah. but it's only very recently that it's become clear that that's a sort of thing, I think. But, there's all, but you know, there's always been, like, Ben Alton, Alexis Sayles, Stephen Fry...
0: You know, uh, it's just they don't tend to identify. Where is Jewish? 1989, the White Horse in Clapham. Yeah, one of your early stand-up gigs. I think one of your gags, right at the top, and I'm probably going to get it wrong slightly. Was, you know, um, my mother was always very involved with my status. If I fell in the canal and was drowning, my mother would stand on the edge and say, "Come quick, come quick, my son, the Oxford graduate is drowning." Cambridge.
1: Sorry. it's not a bad not a bad <laughs> attempt to, to remember a joke from 1989 yes. you, what you should know is, it, is yeah. I nicked it from a Portnoy's complaint
0: because
1: <laughs> yeah, it's an old and Portnoy's complaint I think nicked it from an old j- joke um, but that's the thing you were
0: You were out and proud. I was out and
1: proud as a Jewish comedian, definitely, yeah, definitely. In fact, uh, when I was in Footlights, the Cambridge Footlights, I was doing stand-up in Cambridge Footlights, which most people didn't do. And in the Cambridge Footlights review of 1986, I did two stand-up monologues, one about masturbation
0: and one about being Jewish, and some would say, nothing has changed. It's all been the same. It's all been the same since. But you were kind of set on an academic career. But at what point did you decide no, actually academia is not well I mean, well, you, you well, you well, you you the truth a... is I was like, you were Quite clever, David.
1: Yeah, I got double first at Cambridge. Uh, and then, to be honest with you, I wanted to be a comedian. I'd done comedy in Footlights and enjoyed it and thought this is great. And lots of people seemed seem to be a burgeoning time for comedy. And I'd been to the comedy store as well and whatever. But I didn't have any money, because as I say, not from a wealthy background. Couldn't, certainly not supported by my parents. So I went on the dole um, and started doing comedy and then couldn't really survive on that. So I thought, oh, I know what I can do. I'm got a first. So at that point ah. you could get a grant uh, to live. Uh, so I went to UCL and started doing my PhD really for financial reasons. I mean I was interested as well and probably looking back on it, well certainly looking back on it, it's no question if I hadn't have been successful as a comedian I would have been an academic. How far did you go? Oh, I, I wrote 90% of that PhD. I wrote 90% of that PhD, and I sometimes think I should publish it for my dead grandmother, who was always, David, please publish your PhD, you'll be Dr. Badil. Uh, but I, I now would have to go back and rewrite it enormously because it's kind of academically out of date. And but 90% of yeah. it,
0: mean, And for anybody who doesn't know, a PhD thesis is. It's it's we're a book talking book length. length. It's a, it's a book, book yeah. length. It is a book. Uh, yeah. you went beyond Seductive the. Seductive li- Innocence Victorian Sexuality and the Little Girl by David Badil. Why did you stop? Because
1: I become a successful comedian by then and had no need of
0: it. So, we, so were you already performing with Ron Newman and the Mary Whitehouse Experience while no. writing a PhD thesis? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I left University of Victoria in
1: '86. Uh, I probably joined UCL, I think in '87, and by 1990, the uh, BBC Two pilot of Mary Whitehouse Experience was on TV.
0: So is this the black pepper yes. chicken tikka? and it comes
2: with a little peanut chutney on the side.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Thank, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. You eventually dealt with fame in one of your live shows, but you became famous bloody quickly, bloody young. Um, not really. Not compared to now, I don't think. Uh, I, when, well, when... when I became, all right, Mary Whitehouse experience ends up... I'm, I'm 26. 26. You're 26, all right. 26
1: you are 26 alright i do not think that's really young. I mean, it's quite young, but I don't think it's, like pop stars or reality show stars can become like super famous super quickly now in ways that I think are very destabilising. Having said that, that lots of people I know have become very destabilised by becoming famous. I would say one of the things about me is that I'm very me, is that I have a sort of incredibly strong, wearying, I would say, sense of who I am. Uh, and you've said there's no there's no other performative version of you. No, there's just you. There's just me. Yeah. Um, and really, I've sort of monetized in a way an ability to be myself. And so fame, which that show was about, really that show was about what it's like having a very strong sense of self and then seeing another version of yourself projected out there and in people's minds because that happens with fame. Erica Young said that uh, the more famous you are, the more people will get you wrong, uh, and that's completely correct, I think. And so that that show was about that, because what I think about my own fame is that although it did lead to a version of me that wasn't, or, you know, definitely not absolutely correct out there and involved misconstruction, I myself didn't change at all as a result of being
0: famous. The only thing that has changed me ever in my life, really, is having children. I mean, I think you've said that you are far less famous now than you were. Uh,
1: you know, I, I said in that show there are two things that famous people don't talk about. One is being famous, and the other is not being as famous as they used to be, and those are the two things I very much examined in that show. Strangely, I would say I am more famous now than when I did that show, I, because although I was probably, the white heat of my fame was like in the 90s or whatever. When you were with Rob. When I was Rob, and then with Three okay. Lions and all the rest of it, uh, I think that there's uh, been a sort of recalibration where I'm definitely not as famous as I was then, but I think social media and very other things that I've done, including the return to stand up, has sort of put me back a bit in the public consciousness. Certainly, there are people, and the children's books, which is the most extraordinary thing, really, is so that I now meet lots of children who have really no idea uh, of this backstory but know me like that. In fact, I can tell you a quite, a, I think, quite a funny story about that. Really we like funny stories. I heard a story from a bloke who just wrote to me on Twitter saying that his 10 year old son does not believe or didn't believe that the same person who wrote his favourite books is the same person who sung Football's Coming Home, which is his favourite song. He can't, the cognitive dissonance is too much. And so what he did was he sat him down, his son, and played him Three Lions. And then he said that when the second verse, which is my verse, kicked him, his son looked up and went, oh yes, is that him speaking
0: now? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I think is a very good description of how I sing that second verse. I well, you look at all of this, Yeah. one of the biggest comedy gigs at that point, I mean, I think people have bested you now, but you did mm-hmm. the, with Rob. It was the first ever British the, arena comedy show. 12,000 people. It yeah. was so successful, you immediately had to split up because mm. you hated each other yeah. by that point. You did. Um, the books, uh, social media. Or, is there any plan? Has there ever been any plan?
1: No, not really. Um, and people like me, who who often get asked to look back on their careers or whatever, and they get asked if they have any regrets, they always say, I'll do it all again exactly the same way. And I always think, what are you talking about? If you're actually offered that opportunity, why not admit that you clearly made mistakes? Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone's life, really, any thinking person should be plagued by regret. Um, And I... I'm very happy with what I've had, but I would certainly do things differently. I see myself as a storyteller, really, and I think I can parlay that into many different forms, but it hasn't always worked for me. And in the 90s, I was offered quite a lot of film things. I should have followed those through more because I think... Writing I like... or performing? Well, I was offered, Time for Bed was offered uh, to direct and write the screenplay of Time for Bed. And you said no? Oh, well, it's a long, long story. I didn't really say no, it was a management fuck up. The road's not taken that I would have
0: liked to have taken. But at the same time, it's an unbelievably privileged existence. One of the things that does seem to have defined you is a brilliant talent for a row. Mm. Social media has, mm. has become a. Yeah, but platform. that's a weird thing, though, isn't it? Because. It took me a while to spot what, you, what was actually going on, which is to say, and we can mention this because you're going on tour, and yeah. you probably would like people to know, I, I don't know when it was, maybe six or nine months ago, that something you said, maybe we go, oh, for fuck's sake, that's what he's doing, that it, it's now become a brilliant source of material by which, or, or you can sit at your computer and you can plumb the depths of people's yeah. weirdness so for- <laughs> and depravity and illogical arguments and hey presto there's a show and all you need to do is keep screenshotting <laughs> those well it, it, it's a bit more than that hopefully, yeah, right, hopefully, that. hopefully. Although, <laughs> although
1: actually I, that's one of the challenges for the show is you could to some extent just read out all this stuff and it would definitely it is funny and amazing and, but you need to find a way of uh, find a narrative through mm. it and a journey through it or whatever and also quite a lot of self-questioning through it. I mean, actually, I noticed this yesterday. Um, so just to, for people who don't know what we're talking about, yeah, true. I'm doing a show which would be the third in my uh, series of shows. So since I came back to doing live performing, I've done a show called Fame, Not the Musical, which we've talked about, a show we haven't talked about, we have called My Family, Not the Sitcom. We have talked about My Family, but mm-hmm. Not That Show, which is a sort of very show about my mum's infidelity and my dad's dementia which was very successful and which actually I had to stop doing because it became... It, it know, became your full-time job, practically. And also I was doing it all over the world. I was I did it in Canada, I was in Australia, i have been asked to do it on Broadway. And that is interesting because I think, like, oh, God, this is a hit, but I don't want to keep doing it and keep doing it keep doing it because otherwise it'll become one of those things where that's what he does is that one-man show, you know. Um, so I'm doing a new show which is called Trolls, Not, not the Dolls, Dolls, having made the Not the Thing a bit of a brand. And, yes, is about my adventures on social media. And that was not originally uh, something that I designed to do uh, at all. It was just I noticed very early on, oh, this is, you get lots of abuse on this medium. And of course you do, in a way, because, of course, people are furious about people being more famous and more successful than them. And suddenly you've put yourself in the firing line because right. you're at the mercy of everyone on this thing. And my reaction to that... With whatever hurt it might originally have engendered, went away quite quickly because I thought of oh, their hecklers. That's what they are. It's the same thing as when you go on stage at a comedy club, essentially saying, "I'm the funniest one in the room." Men, in particular, really hate that and start wanting to shout you down, and then you have to be
0: cleverer than them again. So, and when you were doing stand-up, did you have a set of go-to no. responses? Oh, to well, I, I knew, I knew that I knew some standard ones, but I rarely used them
1: actually because people in comedy clubs You'd get used to sure everybody doing, and they got looked down. Other comedians looked, looked down on you for using them. I talk about this in the show. In the show, I talk about how. In improvisation, the rule is always yes and. So you should always... So if you say... You, know, you don't block the thing, with block the idea the thing, If presented. you say, if you're in a sketch and I say, I'm a dentist... You say... uh, Please, could you drill my teeth? Please, could you drill my teeth? You don't say, what are you talking about? I thought you were a chartered surveyor. That's blocking, right? So it's always built on the thing that you say. And I say with heckling and heckle put-downs, it's sort of that, but it's yes, but. So instead of saying, like like people sometimes do on social media, no, how dare you say this about me? That's sort of blocking. You agree with what the person says. An example on social media, for example, someone had seen something uh, and said, oh, I I read this about you and liked it. Then a, a troll said, the only thing I want to read about you is your obituary and I said well at least I'll get one mate and you see what I'm doing there is I'm saying yes him, whilst making him look like a cunt at the same time. I presume you're allowed to use that word. I it's a know. podcast; you can use yeah. your, All the words. Yeah. So when I thought, when I thought back about how did where did this come from? Because I think you will find that almost all heckle pronouns are this thing of like sort of agreeing with them but but subverting them at the same time. I just remembered the first time I com- compared the comedy store, and obviously you might get people shouting all sorts of things. And I did a, some joke about sex, and a big drunk bloke at the front shouted out, um, "It's better from behind." And I found myself saying to him, Yes, a bit like your face. <laughs> and that's like very childish. But again it agrees with him and then turns you it, it on his face. Yeah. On his face.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, which in this case is me. I've got a new book out. It's called My Last Supper, One Meal, A Lifetime in the Making, in which I attempt to answer the one question I've been asked most often, what would my last meal on earth be? I go out in search of the ingredients. It does include pig. And I tell the stories behind them. It's available now in hardback, ebook, and audio formats. And I'm also on tour with a live show based on the book. For tickets and info, visit jrayner.co.uk. And now back to Out to Lunch. So Go Trips, it's glazed with a tamarind and kokum. And these are very slow-cooked on
2: charcoal bread.
0: These really yeah. look delicious. They do. Uh, I'm going hands-in on these, so if you've got yeah. any wet wipes or anything... Yeah, sure, I do have. Yeah. <laughs> I think of too. you, Jay, as someone who
1: goes a lot in your reviews for the kind of smoky, barbecued, goatee, you
0: know... Well, it's, a, it's kind of... Oh, actually, they're quite they're quite forkable. I do a bit. I am a carnivore, even though I'm, I talk properly about non-meat cookery. We've got to engage with it, and I mean it. Yeah. But so so then what? if somebody says chilli goat ribs... Well, mm. I am but a man. You know, it's going to happen. Yeah, and
1: I find it very difficult as well, even though, I mean, this is going to sound hypocritical to your listeners, so I apologise in advance. But I genuinely believe, intellectually, that we should all be vegans. I genuinely believe that in 100 years' time, the way that we slaughter animals on an industrial level will be thought of as a type of genocide.
0: Right.
1: Um, however, and my daughter is vegan, and I think, you know, everything about that is right.
0: I just really like the taste of meat. Oh my! <laughs> Our life is terrible because the crispy lobster is just... Oh, the crispy lobster! Look at that. that. Those are two words. Wow, aren't
1: they? Crispy lobster. I mean, I don't think I've ever had crispy lobster.
0: Have you not? No well, what a sheltered life you've led! I've never had a lobster oh. curry. I don't
1: think. Well, I was like go to cheap curry places. It looks very nice.
0: Now you're doing the show. Yes. Have you stopped collecting material? No, no, no. Every day there's something. So, are you going to try and refresh all the time as it goes on? Yeah, Um, definitely. And I'll get trolled during the show. So, are you planning this time to use a live stream from Twitter? Actually, no, no. no. What I probably will do
1: is um, I will allow. I will say to the audience, "Do troll me in the interval." But also, if I have actually been trolled on Twitter, I will definitely bring it up uh, in the second
0: half. With your live shows, you're essentially mining your life, your own life. Yeah. So is, is this a feature of getting enough life under the wheels that it becomes self-supporting? With comedy, I always say, OK, well, don't think
1: to yourself, if you want to be a comedian, what is it that the world thinks is funny? What's in the community chest of funny? Because then you end up with jokes about, you know, nerdy train spotters or whatever. You have to think about what is it that is funny about my own life, my own voice my own way of looking That's at it. That's an world.
0: actual thing that you you encourage people to do, to yeah. turn
1: around, look in turn because, it on themselves. Yeah, because my I, I think my thinking is that paradoxically, the more specific you are to your individual life, the more likely you are to chime with people out there. Um, I think it's the last uh, mean, the last round.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Is that the go- is that what is that? That's the lamb curry. So we're having that. Yeah. yeah. That looks good. Football has been a recurrent theme in your life. Yeah. It's provided you with a great song. A great song. <laughs> um, royalties, apart from... Not that many royalties. ...during 2018. People
1: go on about it, about the royalties. Honestly, you don't make money from music anymore. Well, you did back in the day, surely. In, A in, in, bit, but, but it's gone to number one four times. Um, and... <laughs> The last time I had to endure, because now it's lots of social media, lots of blokes in particular saying, oh, royalties this, royalty's that. Eventually, I put on Twitter, someone wrote a piece about it in The Observer or Guardian, I think, about exactly how much money it would have made. And on something like the England-Columbia game, there were something like 5.6 million downloads of three lives, from which we would have earned, collectively, £837 or something. I mean, really, it's not a lot of money. It's terrible because I'm okay, but for young people trying to start yeah, the music, sort of. it says that's fucking ridiculous.
0: But it's more important, isn't it, that you, um, given your, your love, adoration of football, that you actually were one of the co writers of the key song yes, for English football. Yes, yeah, obviously, that is very important. Yeah, very important. Um, I actually think what was really interesting about these two dishes is that they're very much more familiar mm. from. From the Holloway Road yes, place. Yeah. From Holloway Road. <laughs>
1: yes, they're a bit more like a standard curry. But it was very nice, and actually you rarely get... So with curry, I do really like curry on the bone. Something you can get at Dars, this place I like very much, uh, around my way. But most of the time, when you have a curry, and you ask for chicken curry or lamb curry, it's not on the bone. And that's often a problem, I think, because it's the meat being a little bit, right. you know, not falling away. But it's more likely to be falling away while it's on the bone. So I think...
0: Tamarind, where we are, I've got it right there with that. Definitely having the lamb on the bone thing. I was very close. The one, the one point where good manners overcame me is I would normally pick up the bone and suck the bone marrow out. You well, have done that. it would have sounded. Was disgusting. there marrow? Yeah, there was marrow in the bone. Oh, bones. Well, I would have done that too. Would you? Yeah. yeah. What, do you, what do you fancy?
1: Um, again, not something I usually have dessert in a Indian restaurant, but. Um, Gulab jamon, even here, uh, it's just too sweet. Is it it's too well, sweet? Yeah. Well, I don't know, here it might not
2: be. You, you serve it in a different way. Uh, you? Okay. Uh, here's the one where we have it um, uh, with a mandarin granita on the top. I just try it.
0: So- well, let's do a gulab jamon and a um, mm-hmm. macan malai. Makan malai? Yes. And we get put them in the middle in two sure. spoons and we can sure. share them. Could I have coffee, please, as well? I'd like um, so? a flat white. Flat white? Please? please. I'd like a large espresso, double espresso. Sure. Could I Thank have
1: that you. with the dessert? Please. Certainly. I feel if I don't have dessert
0: and coffee, I feel like a sentence without a full stop. And as a writer, that would pain you. Yeah, that would pain me, yeah. So you had fantasy football, it was on TV. Yes. Fantasy
1: football is a game, mm. you know, where you pretend to buy football players from different teams. You get a certain amount of imaginary money, you build an imaginary team, and how the actual players do in real life contributes to your school. OK. I was living with Frank Skinner. We were watching a lot of football, because we are both football fans, we'd sort of become friendly on the back of various, watching various games. And I even remember saying, I don't think we could just put fantasy football, the game, on the telly, but... We could build a show, uh, you know, around a comedy show, around football. And then me and Frank went away and essentially just reproduced our home life on the telly.
2: That's the Makan Malai. It is made of milk, but this this one comes from Delhi. It's a particular region in Delhi, which is the old Delhi area where you can find this. It's quite light and foamy, slightly uh, uh, different variation. They have it served on the lychee jelly with a little raspberry sorbet in the middle and some candied nuts on the top. And that's the gulab jamun. Still warm underneath, but on the top we have a mandarin granita, as you say, which balances the sweetness of the dessert. Thank you. And the coffee's on the way. Thank
0: you very much. I have to say, all the lychee and granita and stuff does actually soften the sweetness of that. Good up, Jamon, is normally ridiculously sweet. It's, it's type 2 diabetes in a bowl. Your mm. pancreas sends a letter of resignation as you start eating
1: it. Yeah. Um, it's
0: good that you said type 2 there. I'm, I'm very clear on type, the differences between type 2 and type 1. Yeah, because I'm um,
1: a good example. I did talk about this in the Fame show. No, in the My Family show. Um, of the way that uh, Twitter outrage will work. Is that uh, I was on Jonathan Ross's show. Um, And I told a joke that my son... My son is very, very funny. Um, And when he was about nine, he did this joke where uh, me and him were watching telly, and the advert came on, Red Bull Gives You Wings, and Ezra said, and diabetes. And I said that on Jonathan Ross's show, and he got a big laugh, but then I got absolutely overwhelmed by people saying no bloody type 2 diabetes what do you mean diabetes not lifestyle go and learn about diabetes you're ignorant and- yeah and then I pointed out I point out in the show that what these people therefore actually want is that my nine year old son should have said Red Bull gives you wings and type That's 2 diabetes, diabetes. <laughs> which seems a lot to expect <laughs>
0: for no, a yeah <laughs> which is my, uh, in my segue <laughs> which would lead to definitely diabetes of all kinds indeed it's my way of saying, uh, David Baddiel, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you, Jay. It's been lovely. It has. It's been has terrific. It? Um, oh. How does it compare to a Holloway Road curry house? Um,
1: it's longer. It's better. The food is better than at the Holloway Road curry house. It's not necessarily better than at
0: Darl's. So Tamarind can now put that on their website. <laughs> yeah, that's... The food is better than a Holloway Road curry house, David Baddiel. <laughs> not better than Darl's. <laughs> we've got to put the whole thing in, otherwise it's not true, James. And we know the truth is all. Yeah. Well, as we made clear, David Badil and I have known each other for a very long time. It's shameful to admit we went to the same school, but we've never known each other very well. So it really was a delight to get some time at a table with him with some good food and get him to open up and to talk seriously. He is a real, real talker. Uh, A little bit grumpy at times, but brilliant with it. And I think it was all there during our lunch. And one note, you may have read about a few employment issues at Tamarind. Uh, Those were reported in the newspapers after we recorded this interview. If you're still hungry, you can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could give us a big fat five-star review and share us to your pals, it really helps others discover the show. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. Sound recording was by Paul Brogdon. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's political when I invite Birmingham Yardley MP Jess Phillips out for a spot of lunch. I've got to give out awards at a school in my constituency later, but I can think I think I
2: can probably drink, I'll be fine by then.
0: Um <laughs>